Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. Climate Summit in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, this is Democracy Now! We were asleep and safe. They told us it was a safe area, Rafa and all. But at 20 past 10, they struck it with barrels, destroying all of the block. There were children, women and martyrs. There is no safe area, neither Rafa nor Khan Yunus nor Israel Gaza. Israel is expanding its air and ground assault on Gaza, killing more than 800 Palestinians since Saturday bringing the death toll to more than 15,500 people. We'll go to Khan Yunus for the latest. Then climate activists here at COP28 in Dubai staged a protest calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. These last two months, we have witnessed not just the Palestinian people starve, trapped, cut off from the world, bombed and killed, their screams echoing throughout the night with no hope of rescue. As every morning, we wait desperately for that message that our friends and our colleagues are still alive. But whilst watching the international community stand in silence. We'll speak to Assad Raymond about the protests and the UN climate summit so far. Then, for the first time in nine years, a representative from Human Rights Watch has been allowed access to the United Arab Emirates. The UAE is a deeply repressive Petro state with a zero tolerance policy towards dissent. HRW has been deeply concerned for many months over the ability of COP28 participants to freely and safely express their opinions and participate in protests. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. We're broadcasting from Dubai, from the UN Climate Summit. I'm Amy Goodman. Gaza's health ministry says Israeli strikes have killed more than 800 people since Saturday after Israel targeted the besieged Palestinian territory with some of its most violent assaults yet including parts of southern Gaza previously designated by Israel's military as safe zones. Dozens were killed as Israel flattened homes in the Jabalia refugee camp where displaced families were sheltering. While in Gaza's city, Shujaia neighborhood, Israeli strikes destroyed 50 residential buildings and homes, killing more than 300 people. Ambulance drivers have been targeted by Israeli snipers, including a medic who was shot transporting an injured person towards Al-Auda Hospital. UNICEF spokesperson James Elder delivered this message from inside Gaza's Nasser Hospital. 
we cannot see more children with the wounds of war, with the burns, with the shrapnel littering their body with the broken bones. Inaction by those with influence is allowing the killing of children. This is a war on children. Clearly, words, clearly pleas from the world do not make a difference on those who have the power to stop the killing, the maiming of children. We'll speak with a Palestinian reporter outside Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus after headlines. Following the collapse of the temporary truce Friday, Israel continues to restrict the number of aid trucks permitted into the besieged enclave as Gazans continue to plead for food, water and a permanent end to the attacks. The days of the truce, God protect us. We slept, we rested, there was no drones and we were living well. But with what happened today, we've been living in fear and anxiety. Really, fear has returned, the sadness has returned. With every explosion we sprung up, is it in front of us, is it behind us? We are living in terror. If anyone has any way to help us, we are dying of starvation. Over the weekend, Hamas said it would not release any more Israeli hostages until a ceasefire comes into effect and Israel releases all Palestinian prisoners. Meanwhile, top U.S. officials have publicly warned Israel's military about the tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians it has killed. This is Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. You see, in this kind of a fight, the center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. Austin's warning came as the Wall Street Journal reported the U.S. has supplied Israel with 15,000 bombs, including 2,000-pound bunker busters and 57,000 artillery shells since October 7th. Here in the United States, a protesters in critical condition after setting themselves on fire Friday outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, Georgia. Authorities said the protester never posed a threat to consular staff and the self-immolation was believed to be, quote, an act of extreme political protest. In Denver, Colorado, hundreds of Jewish activists and their allies blocked traffic on the busy Spear Boulevard Sunday following a week of protests outside the Colorado Convention Center, where the Jewish National Fund was holding its global conference for Israel. Fifteen members of Jewish Voice for Peace were arrested after chaining themselves together on the road and halting traffic for an hour. The United Auto Workers became the latest and largest union to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. The UAW joins the American Postal Workers Union, the California Nurses Association, the Chicago Teachers Union, and others in calling for a ceasefire. The UAW is also creating a divestment and just transition working group and taking a closer look at the union's economic ties to the conflict. The United Nations COP28 Climate Summit opened here in Dubai Thursday with delegates agreeing to adopt a new loss and damage fund to help poorer nations deal with the disproportionate impact of the climate crisis. Initial funding will start at $429 million, just a fraction of what's needed to address the annual cost of climate catastrophes. Governments from the Global South and climate activists welcomed the fund, but underlined its deficiencies. This is Libyan activist Nisabek. 
considering the fact that most of these developing countries that actually need the fund are politically instable, already the prerequisite sort of um, for receiving the fund is not there. The loss and damage fund will only be a band-aid if fossil fuel continue to be produced. Loss and damage from climate change cost 1.5 trillion last year alone. Barbados's Prime Minister, Mia Motley, called for major reforms to global financial institutions and for firm and binding commitments from governments. We live now in the age of superlatives. And in the age of superlatives, we've seen this year, one-third of the days of the year exceed 1.5 degrees. In Glasgow, I said this was a death sentence. It is a death sentence for many. And the reality is that unless we change course and adopt the policies that can in fact help mitigate that increase in temperatures, we are going to see far more lives lost and far more damage done. I've asked the world simply, let us agree to leave here with a global methane agreement. A number of world leaders used their time on the global stage to speak out against Israel's assault on Gaza, including South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, Colombian President Gustavo Petro, and Jordanian King Abdullah. Later in the broadcast, we'll hear voices from a protest for Gaza here at the U.N. Climate Summit. COP28 President Sultan al-Jaber is facing a new wave of criticism after claiming there's no science backing the phase-out of fossil fuels. Al-Jaber, who also heads the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, ADNOC, made the comments during a virtual panel last month on women and climate change in response to Mary Robinson, former UN Special Envoy for Climate Change and former president of Ireland. There is no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my North Star. During the combative exchange with former President Mary Robinson, al Jaber repeatedly lashed out defensively and chastised the former Irish president. The science is very acute now. We don't have any time. They say six or seven years. We've got to peak by 2025 latest in fossil fuel. And your company is investing in a lot more new fossil fuel. And that's, that's, that's going to hurt women. Uh, ma'am, <laughs> you've, you've just accused me of something that is not correct. I'm sorry. I don't take it. Now I ask you to prove to I, me. I, I read that how... your company is, is investing in a lot more fossil fuel in the future. Yes, ma'am, you're reading, you're reading your own media, which is biased and wrong. I am telling you, I am the man in charge, and it is wrong, ma'am. You need to listen to me. In the lead-up to COP28, reports emerged that Al-Jaber was using the event to make oil deals with foreign governments. Al-Jaber rejected the reports. In remarks earlier today, he reiterated his what he called his commitment to science, telling reporters here at COP, quote, we very much believe and respect the science. Venezuelans have approved a voter referendum claiming sovereignty over a disputed area on Venezuela's border with Guyana. 
The region of Essequibo is roughly 60,000 square miles of mostly dense jungle and is rich in oil and mineral reserves. Venezuela's long-held claim to the land, which it says was stolen when borders between the two nations were drawn by international arbitrators over a century ago when Guyana was still a British colony. Sunday's referendum has heightened fears in Guyana that Venezuela could try to take over Essequibo through annexation. On Friday, the International Court of Justice warned Venezuela against taking any action to assert control over Essequibo. In the Philippines, the Islamic State has claimed responsibility for an explosion during a Catholic Mass Sunday that killed four people and injured dozens of others. The blast went off inside the gymnasium of Mindanao State University in Marawi, the Philippines' largest Muslim city. A survivor recounted her ordeal. First, we were singing during the Mass, then there was a sudden explosion behind us. We thought it was just the speakers, but then everybody started running. I stumbled, and my friend told me to keep running. That's all I can remember. When I got out of the gym, I fell, and my friends started crying because they saw I was wounded in the back. In 2017, the Philippines government waged a months-long battle to dislodge ISIS-allied militants in Marawi laying waste to much of the southern city and killing nearly 1,200 people. <laughs> Back in the United States, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve as a U.S. Supreme Court justice, has died at the age of 93. She was appointed by President Reagan, sworn in in 1981. She served until 2006. She often acted as a swing vote of the court, including the 1992 landmark case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which upheld the constitutional right to an abortion. In 2000, Justice O'Connor cast the fifth vote in Bush v. Gore, leading to George W. Bush's election victory. Two and a half years later, Bush led the U.S. into an illegal invasion of Iraq. In 2013, the then-retired Sandra Day O'Connor suggested the Supreme Court should not have taken the Bush v. Gore case. And the House voted on Friday to expel New York Republican George Santos over multiple ethics violations, making him just the sixth Congress member to ever be ousted from the House of Representatives by fellow lawmakers. The bipartisan vote came as Santos is facing a 23-count federal indictment, including fraud related to his campaign finances. He also repeatedly lied about his family, background, and professional experience. Santos's parting words as he left the House building to hell with this place. A special election is expected to be scheduled in February to fill Santos's seat. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at Gaza. As Israel expands its air and ground assault on the besieged territory days after a truce between Israel and Hamas ended, Palestinian health officials say Israel's killed at least 800 people since Saturday. Here at the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai, over 100 protesters gathered on the sidelines of the summit for a peaceful action in solidarity with the people of Palestine, demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The rally took place across the, from the uh, United Arab Emirates Pavilion inside Dubai's Expo City, where the summit's being held. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry drove past as the action was starting. Hindered by U.N. restrictions blocking protesters from raising Palestinian flags or naming any specific country, demonstrators held banners with watermelons painted on them. 
a well-known symbol of the Palestinian movement as the fruit bears Palestine's national colors, red, black, and green. The UAE bans protests and organized groups, but has allowed some actions during the summit. Protesters were also prohibited from chanting phrases like from the river to the sea and free Palestine. Some still did in defiance. Several wore Palestinian kafiyas. Dozens of protesters wept as speakers read some of the names of the over 15,000 Palestinians killed by Israeli strikes in Gaza since October 7th, including more than 6,000 children. Democracy Now! was there. When human rights are under attack, what do we do? We'll be reading for you today from the Gaza Ministry of Health a list of names of all those who've been killed since October 7th. <laughs> still be written. My name is Tarek Lubun. I'm a Ghazawi born in Detroit. This violence is not happening just in my hometown of Gaza. It's happening everywhere. Um, being in Detroit, there are so many situations in which water has been cut off. Being just down the street from Flint, Michigan, we see water um, be poisoned and polluted for the people and the residents of Flint. And precedents like that where people are expendable is only possible because of the violence we see inflicted upon people back in my homeland. And because of that, we are taking the stand here today, not just as Palestinian people, myself, but people who are allied with justice for all people across the world, because that is what is necessary to have true climate justice. What good is finding a world that is green if the roots are so soaked in blood? What good is a world that is green if there's nobody left to live in it? The precedent set on people's lives and the calculations we make as to who is expendable that is the precedent we set for who is expendable anywhere. Hey ho, take me by the hand. Strong in solidarity we stand. Human rights and justice, human rights and justice. Hey ho, and they apartheid. Marhaba. Just because now we have social media, we were able to see some of the facts. Have you seen this TikTok that went viral? We know TikToks that goes viral about food. Did you see this TikTok about how you remove white phosphorus from your body? Because white phosphorus weapons are being shelled on people, shelled on civilians, shelled on women and children. And this is where most of the casualties are. Lots of women where we had almost 50,000 women pregnant trying to deliver at this time of the period. And these women, lots of them lost their lives. And if you have seen also these newborn babies, have you seen them? Have you seen them struggling for air to breathe? But unfortunately, electricity was cut off. They had no food, no water, no sanitation. They had nothing to breathe on. They had nothing to survive on. And lots of these newborn children were killed. And let's be their voices. A protest 
You've been listening to a protest that took place yesterday. You've been listening to a protest here at the U.N. Climate Summit outside the United Arab Emirates in the U.N. COP. Um, but right now, we will go back to that protest. But right now, we have just made a connection with Gaza, and we feel it's absolutely critical to go to it. Um, as the ground assault continues on the besieged territory days after a truce between Israel and Hamas ended. Palestinian health officials say Israel's killed at least 800 people since Saturday, bringing the total death toll to over 15,000. The Gaza Health Ministry official says hospitals are being, quote, flooded with an influx of dead bodies. In Gaza City, a massive Israeli attack leveled about 50 buildings in the neighborhood of Shujaiya, reportedly killing more than 300 people. Um, we're going to turn right now just outside the hospital in Khan Yunis called the Nasser Hospital. There, Gazan journalist Akram al-Satari is standing. He's going to talk to us about the situation in the south of Gaza, in Khan Yunus, and also talk about his own situation and where his family is living as well. This is Akram. 65 square kilometers, becoming the largest battlefield on earth. Gaza, 1.8 million people asked to move and leave their homes in the very north in the Gaza Strip, in Gaza City and Gaza Central area, towards the very south of, uh, of Gaza, to Rafah area. They are being bombarded while they're trying to move. Houses are being destroyed. In the last 24 hours, more than 1,760 people were killed. In the last 12 hours, more than 316 people were killed. The massive movement of the people can be seen for everyone who's moving throughout the different streets of the Gaza Strip. People who are grabbing anything they can take. People who moved from the north to the central Gaza and to the uh, Khan Yunis area. They are grabbing almost everything because they came almost with nothing from the north. And now they are being asked to move to the south because the bombardment is going heavier. And in the south, when they are settling there, the bombardment is resumed and people are killed. In the last three or four hours, several incidents and several explosions were reported in different areas of the Gaza Strip, inclusive Khan Yunis area, Rafah area to the very south of the Gaza Strip, and Gaza central area and Gaza city and the north as well. Palestinians who were left with almost nothing, no transportation, no fuel, no energy, no supplies whatsoever. Even the water now is becoming a very scarce commodity in the Gaza Strip. People with all of that facing, or all of that they are facing, are being asked to move. Some of them are walking on foot for such a very long time for the sake of just fleeing to safety. The safety is in very south of Rafah, and when they reach the, prom the promised safety, they end up being bombarded. When they reach the promised safety, they lost their deers. They lost the shelter that they are trying to build. I was on my way to Rafah and then back to Khan Yunis area. I was seeing the people who were trying to erect the tents on the two sides of the road. People who were just taking any kind of wood and branches of the trees that they can find, any kind of plastic sheets, any kind of wood to start and do something that can serve them as a shelter. I am already an IDP now, internally displaced person, because whole, my whole area was asked to leave. And I had to leave my home, my apartment, one apartment that I spent a whole time trying to build for me and for my family. And when we we're about to leave, we're wondering what can we take and what can we leave? Because our capacity to take things is very limited. We started prioritizing medication number one. 
medications number one because they are life-saving and then blankets sheet sheets mattresses whatever we can get even the water we were carrying with us because of the fact that i told you water is a scarce commodity in the gaza strip people who are now in rafah are facing a very dramatic situation they don't have supplies they don't have food they don't have water and they are still struggling for the sake of securing any type of living or life in that area. They have been using their children, their mothers, their spouses for the sake of just getting anything that can help them to start fire and to warm some water and to cook something. 1.8 million in Gaza now officially IDBs, internal displaced people. And those 1.8 million people are trying to find somewhere place that they can hide. But the heavy bombardment in the last few days and the heavy bombardment throughout the whole conflict left no one safe in Gaza. Left no one safe in Gaza like because of the large-scale killing resulting of that from that bombardment. Large-scale devastation resulting from that bombardment and large-scale insecurity resulting from that as people of Gaza are facing a profound access and security crisis. They have not been able to access anything and their personal security have been jeopardized by the ongoing devastation and escalation. Akram al-Satari reporting to us from Gaza. He's in southern Gaza. He's standing just outside the Nasser Hospital uh, in Khan Yunis, where he has also, in addition to reporting there, moved his family south. Khan Yunis is a place where the Israeli military originally told people in northern Gaza to move to, and now they are bombing Khan Yunis, where so many hundreds of thousands uh, of Palestinians have moved to Khan Yunis and further south to Rafah. Um, it's extremely difficult to make these conditions, uh, to make these connections, and we thank all of those who have helped us. Um, we're going to turn now to a break. This break, our Gazan journalists, Palestinian journalists, who have survived the assault so far, though many have lost family members, singing together. We will stay here until the pain goes away. Journalists in Gaza seen sitting together 
in their press identified clothing in a viral video singing, we will stay here until the pain goes away. More than 60 journalists and media workers have been killed since October 7th, 54 of them Palestinian journalists in Gaza. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We are broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. As we go back to the report that we just were bringing you before Akram brought us his report from Gaza, these are voices of a protest Sunday when over 100 people gathered on the sidelines of the U.N. Climate Summit for a peaceful action in solidarity with the Palestinian people demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The rally taking place just across from the United Arab Emirates Pavilion inside Dubai's Expo City, where we are right now, where the summit is being held. These are more voices from that protest. I come here uh, from the, the continent of North America representing our indigenous peoples of our Muscogee uh, communities who uh, for many years now we have lived in an occupied state. We were dispossessed of our lands. We were forced upon reservations where we were confined to one area. The water and the resources that we had known for thousands upon thousands of years were taken from us and commodified and exported and stolen from our peoples. Today we come here and I stand here and have been asked to say these words because I stand in solidarity with each one of my relatives here and everything that you're going through, my relatives on these lists here, I'm never going to forget those names that are being said in one day. I will greet them when I join them in the spirit world. But today I want to say something before more violence is incurred that this has to stop now. I stand here uh, as a member of Africans Rising, which is a pan-African movement of Africans working for unity, justice, peace, and dignity. Just like Desmond Tutu said, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. So we are here because we have decided that we shall not be neutral. Sisters, brothers, uh, solidarity greetings from the Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice. Today we stand in a space bearing the words of the United Nations in a process we are deeply committed to as the eyes, ears and voices of our people fighting for justice. The body that was created after the horrors of the Second World War with a promise of never again. A promise that made it illegal to target civilians. A promise that it made it illegal to use food, water, medicine as a weapon of war. A promise of human rights. A promise that all people would be able to live with dignity, free from occupation and oppression. And, these, and for these last two months, we have witnessed not just the Palestinian people starved, trapped, cut off from the world, bombed and killed, their screams echoing throughout the night with no hope of rescue. As every morning, we wait desperately for that message that our friends and our colleagues are still alive. But whilst watching the international community stand in silence, and again, not just for these last two, two months, but, but for 15 years of an illegal blockade, for 50 years of an occupation and apartheid, and 100 years of ethnic cleansing and settler colonialism. 
We watched an international community that has been actively complicit in war crimes, in crimes against humanity, where the genocidal intent isn't even bothered to be hidden anymore. And still, of course, that's not enough. We've seen hospitals, schools bombed. We've seen medics, journalists, and even UN staff killed. 18,000 people. Human rights and humanitarian law is lying shreds. And some ask, some ask us, why do we care about the Palestinians? Why do climate justice groups mobilize in their millions from Pakistan to the Philippines, from Belgium to Brazil, from South Africa to Sweden? Why is it that people from all around the world, black, white, brown, Jew, Muslim, Christian, are taken to the streets? It's because we have seen the masks that have slipped. We have seen how the Palestinians are not even viewed as human beings. And in the faces of the Palestinians, for black, brown and indigenous people, we see our past, our present and our future of lives deemed less valuable than others, of an arc of 500 years of colonialism and racialized capitalism, of sacrificed people and of sacrificed land, of the powerful profiting from oppression, but then saying they don't have any money for climate finance, but billions for bombs and bullets against the people. And we say, and we say to those powerful countries who put words of human rights into text over there that no amount of empty words will ever erase your complicity. You not only wrote the blank check, you enabled this, you own this, you own this as much as those who are put, dropping the bombs on the terrified people of Palestine. So here today, we, the peoples of the world, say to the Palestinian people, the international community over there may have forgotten you, but you are not alone. You will never be alone because we are all colonialism, end apartheid, end occupation, free Palestine. We are going to close this moment by respecting the names, the identities, the children, the women, the mothers, the fathers, the journalists have been murdered. We are going to read some of those names. Isa Ahmed, Isa Nashar, eight years old. Zaid Sabri Musleh Radi, eight years old. Faiz Shadi, Faiz Al Dakka, eight years old. Mana Hissam Mahmoud Abu Ayada, 14 years old. Mahmoud Muhammad Fathi Al Shair, 14 years old. Amjad Khalid Kamal Raswan, three years old. Voices from a protest Sunday inside the UN climate summit here in Dubai, showing solidarity with the Palestinian people, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. 
The first voice in this last segment was Charbonne Cornell of the Muskegee Nation here in the United States. And the last speech you heard was our guest right now, Assad Rayman. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. The summit opening Thursday with delegates agreeing to adopt a new loss and damage fund to help poorer nations deal with the disproportionate impact of the climate crisis. Initial funding starts at something like $429 million, just a fraction of what's needed to address the annual cost of climate catastrophes. Governments from the Global South and climate activists welcomed the fund, but underscored its deficiencies. The themes here at COP28 today are finance, trade, gender equality, and accountability. Sunday, the focus was health the disease uh, that is generated by um, the pathogens, um, the challenges to global health that are generated by climate change. We're joined now by Assad Raymond, the executive director of War and Want, lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition that held this unusual protest. It's not unusual for the world, Assad, and I know from where you come from in London, there have been massive protests, as there have been in the United States, against Israel's assault on Gaza. But here, the rules are very strict. We did not once hear um, Israel, a country, named. Talk about why. Well, first of all, you're right. It's a unique protest. And we have to say it's a unique protest also in Dubai generally. There are no protests allowed and there have been no protests on Palestine allowed. In fact, the last protest on Palestine was back in 2008. Um, this is a UN body and you, the UN body has certain rules. And those include you can't name or shame a country. Uh, you can't mis use somebody's flag, which are usually rules that, of course, we all abide by. But this year, there's been even added pressure. And this is largely because we are talking about Israel and we're talking about Palestine, where very, very powerful countries, in fact, they're the same powerful countries who are blocking the action we need on climate change, have been pressuring that there should not be uh, a voice raised on Palestine. In fact, we've been explicitly told why is Palestine being raised in this climate space? This is inappropriate for us to be raising the issue of Palestine, where, of course, this is the most appropriate place because we're talking about the rights of people and solidarity with people and our visions, not just of the past, the present, and, as I said, of the future. And, I mean, this intersectionality we saw last year in Sharm el-Sheikh, right, with the climate justice advocates uh, standing together with uh, Egyptian human rights activists, demanding people be released from prison, etc., saying that you can't talk about justice uh, with, and climate separately. Absolutely. We held our protests actually on the day that this place talked about human rights. And so you had many countries uh, writing words in the draft and preambles about the importance of human rights. And yet when we were raising human rights, when we were saying that there can be no climate justice without human rights, we were being told that that was unacceptable, inappropriate. And so it's been a real challenge, and particularly for many Palestinians who are unable to attend and have been un and, and unwilling to attend for a whole number of reasons. They've looked to us as global civil society to use this moment because we are 
as we meet here, as your correspondent set was talking from Gaza, the bombs are dropping, people are dying, and the international community is unwilling to act. And we know we could stop this bombing by some very powerful countries, particularly the US, saying, no, cease fire now. It's interesting that the former U.S. presidential candidate, former U.S. senator, the U.S. climate envoy here, drove by the protest as it was taking place. That was John Kerry. Uh, indeed, absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, last year, I mean, it's interesting, the U.S. delegates last year walked out of the, one of the plenary rooms when the Russian representative spoke in their expression of solidarity on Ukraine. But yet we are told, speaking up and showing solidarity with the Palestinian people in the face of an ethnic cleansing, ongoing, clearly genocidal intent, and we're seeing now what's happening with more and more Palestinians pushed closer and closer to the Rafa border, starved of food, water, medicine, and inevitable, nowhere to go. And, and what the consequences of that is, is likely to be is going to be horrendous. And so this is the moment we have to speak out. Inside the summit, the issue of Israel's assault on Gaza was raised by Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa, by Gustavo Petro of Colombia and other world leaders. Absolutely. And world leaders were allowed to speak and, and raised it. And they were very welcome and we're glad that they did. Uh, but we as civil society have had very, very many challenging conversations to be even able to say the word ceasefire. We were not allowed to talk about apartheid. We're not allowed to say the word settler colonialism. You may have noticed that those banners had certain other variations of words on them. And this is because our own language was being policed. Uh, and we think that that's totally inappropriate. It's not for the UN to decide. In fact, we are using language that the United Nations itself uses, its own human rights experts use, its all UN agencies are saying there is a system of apartheid. Ethnic cleansing is taking place. Well, I want to go to someone who was allowed to speak, and that is Gustavo Petro, the president of Colombia. This was what he said when he addressed the UN Climate Summit here in Dubai. Los invito a que imaginemos una fusión. I invite you to think about a fusion, a combination of events, the climate crisis and the genocide of the Palestinian people. Are these events disconnected, is my question, or are we seeing here a mirror of what is going to happen in the future? The genocides and the barbaric acts unleashed against the Palestinian people is what awaits those who are fleeing the south because of the climate crisis. Most victims of climate change, which will be counted in the billions, will be in those countries that do not emit CO2 or emit very little. Without the transfer of wealth from the north to the south, the climate victims will increasingly have less drinking water in their homes, and they will have to migrate north, where the melting glaciers will make it possible for people to have drinking water. The exodus will be in the billions. There will be pushback against the exodus, with violence, with barbaric acts committed. This is what is happening in Gaza. This is a rehearsal for the future. Why have the major carbon-consuming nations made it possible for the systemic killing of thousands of children in Gaza, is my question. Because if they do not kill them, they will invade their country to prevent them from consuming their carbon. We can therefore see what the future will look like. There will be a shrink 
king of democracy and unleashed barbaric acts against our peoples, those of us who do not emit CO2, those of us who are poor. That's the Colombian president, Gustavo Petro, speaking here at the UN Climate Summit in the United Arab Emirates in Dubai. Asad Raymond, so let's talk about this climate summit. Um, if you can talk about issues of loss and damage, and just remember for a global audience, people don't even know what loss and damage means. There's a lot of jargon that keeps people out of understanding what's taking place. Absolutely. So we started this climate summit with a warning that we're currently headed at least to 2.9 degree warming. And if we think about the violence and the impacts that happen in the United States, all over the world, that's all happening at just over one degree uh, warming. So... 2.9 is going to be devastating. Some estimate we're closer to heading towards 4 degrees if all the new fossil fuel expansion, particularly by countries like the US, UK and the European Union, comes on stream. The big question here is basically, will rich countries live up to their responsibility to act? And instead, they've been pushing that action onto other countries. Now, those damages that are happening, and those are economic and social and just to put into a context, uh, if we remember the floods in Pakistan that happened last year, they were cost Pakistan $35 billion. That was the damage. And developing countries have been saying for a long time to rich countries, you've caused this problem. Are you going to help us deal with its impacts? And rich developed countries have been saying, no, we don't. But finally here, we got a fund. But then the big question came, who's going to put money into it? And developed countries said... We are not going to be liable. In fact, the United States put a paltry $17 million into that fund. The very next day announced billions in arm in uh, uh, money for missiles and bombs to Israel and, and to Ukraine. So it shows you the disparity of, of what's going on. And this has been a long-standing issue. The second thing and big thing that's happening here is what they call a global stock take. And this is really the idea of you you see how far we've come in progress and then you decide how much more do we need to do and again rich countries have come there and said forget what's happened in the past we might not have acted in the past forget all of that that we're responsible for all that now we just have to look towards the future and developing countries are saying but hold on the majority of what's happened now is because of your past because you've polluted so much you have to take responsibility and that flows into the conversations about finance and of course if and interestingly and what's a lot of commentators and a lot of uh, civil society are looking at is a new conversation happening here which is called the just transition work pathway in the United States, we've seen the IRA, the idea of transition in the economy, and there's calls for that to be happening at a global level. But the US, the UK, and the European Union are saying, we are going to take responsibility for our transition in the north, but we're not going to take responsibility in supporting you in the global south. And lots of global south countries saying, but without your support, without the technology, without the finance, we are not going to be able to transition. And what do you say to Sultan Al-Jaber, um, Al-Jaber, who is the president of the COP, also the president of ADNOC, that's the Abu Dhabi National Oil Corporation, who, in a conversation with Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, said that 
sustainable development, a phase-out of fossil fuels, uh, would not allow um, sustainable development unless you want to take the world back into caves. He tried to defend his comments today in his press conference, saying he believes in science. Well, and it's not just him. I mean, the fact that we have had leaders of rich countries coming here and saying we believe in the science, but expanding fossil fuels at home shows that what we need is a is a equitable phase out of fossil fuels. But we also need, you know, at the same time, a recognition that for developing countries, many, many poor countries, they are still dealing with the fact that people don't have energy. And so energy poverty and energy access is needed. And the only way we can be, be both deal with the fossil fuel issue and deal with the question of poverty is to connect both and to say we need an equitable phase out, but we also need a just transition. This is the largest UN climate summit ever held in a country that does not allow protests. The significance of this, we have just 30 seconds. Well, it's hugely problematic because, of course, our role as civil society is the eyes, ears and voice of people is to be able to put pressure not only in the negotiating rooms, but the, on the outside. And one of that is by our power and mobilising. When you take away one of our key tools, you minimise our ability to be able to shape these negotiations and deliver the impact that we need. We want to thank you so much, Asad Raymond, uh, Executive Director of War on Want, lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition. Next, for the first time in nine years, a representative from Human Rights Watch has been allowed access to the United Arab Emirates. We'll speak to her back in a minute. should fall from grace with God by the Pogues. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. This year marks the first time in nine years that Human Rights Watch has been allowed access to the United Arab Emirates. We're turning now to look at conditions here in the UAE, the climate crisis, as well as human rights. Human Rights Watch is out with a new report headlined, You Can Smell Petrol in the Air. UAE fossil fuels feed toxic pollution. Its earlier report, titled Heat at COP28, highlights risks to migrant workers. 
For more, we're joined by Joey Shea, researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, investigating human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. She, along with four colleagues, has been allowed in for the first time in nine years to UAE. Uh, Joey, thank you for joining us. Talk about the significance of what you have found in one report after another that you're putting out now. Yeah, and it's great to be here, and it's great to be here in Dubai. As you said, this is the first time that Human Rights Watch has been able to access the UAE in nine years. Over the past decade, UAE authorities have engaged on a sustained assault against basic rights and freedoms. There is no independent civil society in this country. Civil society organizations have been banned, and there has been a sustained targeting of human rights defenders, um, activists, um, judges, lawyers, regular Emirati citizens who dare speak out about the human rights abuses taking place. One of the cases that we have been following very closely is the case of Ahmed Mansour, who is the current member of Human Rights Watch's advisory committee. And he has been imprisoned in an isolation cell since March 2017. Um, he was arrested and detained and sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2018, based purely on tweets that uh, related to documentation of violations in the UAE, and as well as uh, private WhatsApp messages sent from Ahmed Mansour to groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. Uh, so it's very striking that HRW is, is here today. We're happy to be here. We want to continue to engage, but the rights crisis um, in this country is uh, very concerning. Uh, and it's not only Ahmed Mansour, of course, in prison. If you can talk about other mass trials of people who simply sign petitions. Yeah, absolutely. So we have been following this case um, called the UAE 94 case for the past 10 years. In 2011, a group of academics, lawyers, um, drafted a very politely worded petition calling for greater participation and governance in the UAE. For that petition, in starting in 2012, there was a months-long crackdown on those individuals, and they were arbitrarily arrested, 94 of them, which is where the UAE 94 case comes from. In 2013, after a trial marred with due process violations that did not meet the standards for a fair trial, HRW was there at the time and documented these violations, These 69 of these defendants were sentenced to between 5 and 10 years imprisonment. Now, many of those defendants have actually been up for release. Even though they should not have spent a single day in prison, they are still being held beyond their release date on these bogus counterterrorism charges, which effectively allows UAE authorities to keep individuals imprisoned um, indefinitely. Joey, can you talk about migrant workers? People may be surprised to understand that 88% of the population of the United Arab Emirates are migrant workers. 88%. What are the conditions that they work under? Horrendous. So migrant workers in the UAE work under what is called the kafala or sponsorship system, which ties their legal status in, their, in this country to their employers. Um, and this makes them incredibly vulnerable to labor-related violations. So exorbitant recruitment fees, wage theft, 
and also extreme heat-related health risks. Where we are today in Dubai Expo City, um, where COP28 is being held, was um, built by migrant workers. And in the summer months in the UAE, the temperatures come up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Completely, you know, extreme, extreme heat. And yet these workers are, are forced to labor, um, even in these conditions of extreme heat. And there are woefully inadequate protections in place in this country. Have there been some changes uh, in dealing with their working conditions that they not be required to work when it is so hot out? Yeah, so there have been some reforms. So the UAE now prohibits uh, explicitly forced labor. Um, and as well, they have brought in what is called a midday work ban, which spans from June until September and does not allow work between the hours of noon and 3 p.m. However, if you've ever been to Dubai in August, extreme heat goes beyond just noon and 3 p.m. And yet these workers are forced to, to labor in these conditions. As well, um, the, the government doesn't enforce these um, regulations across the board. And we've documented time and time again um, health risks from migrant workers who've been forced to work in these conditions. And talk about where these migrant workers are from. So this is what's so important for COP28. These migrant workers come from countries on the front lines of the climate crisis. They are from Nepal. They are from Bangladesh. And the UAE is externalizing its climate risks um, because these workers are, are um, uh, on the front lines of, this crisis, of the climate crisis. Their families back home are subject to the uh, extreme weather events. So, for example, their homes are being destroyed. And the migrant workers here are unable to send remittances back because they're subject to this abusive kafala system. So, migrant so we're talking about Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Philippines. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, the, the families back at home are under severe financial stress from the climate crisis. And the workers here are unable to provide that financial support because they are subject to the abusive kafala system, which takes their wages. Um, and they also have uh, health impacts from working in extreme heat. And there's no compensation from the UA government or from their employers to help them deal with these health How did impacts. they get here? They, so they're subject uh, to this uh, kafala system. So they're brought in by um, uh, companies, and they, these companies often charge them exorbitant recruitment freeze. So already when they arrive here, they are subject, uh, they, in many cases, subject to extreme debt. That's very difficult to get out of. Um, Joey Shea, if you can talk about your mass surveillance report. Yeah, absolutely. So... From the moment COP28 participants landed in Dubai, they were subject to intense mass surveillance from the Emirati government. So in Dubai alone, there are 300,000 cameras around in public spaces. As well, where we are in Dubai Expo City, there are thousands of cameras conducting mass surveillance. In addition to mass surveillance, the, the UAE government has been documented using targeted digital surveillance. So, for example, Ahmed Mansour, who we just spoke about, he was an early um, recipient of NSO's notorious spyware, um, Pegasus spyware, and the WhatsApp messages that were used to incriminate him in his case, um, which with organizations such as Human Rights Watch, were taken from his phone through the use of Pegasus. And what are people doing about this? I know at the airport, we were handed back with our passports a 5G SIM card. Yeah. I hope you didn't put that SIM card in your phone. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, and it has an absolute chilling effect on COP28 participants who see the cameras, who understand that there's mass surveillance. It's very difficult, impossible to have private conversations here, especially if you're a climate activist trying to mobilize against fossil fuels. Tell us what would happen if you put those 5G SIM cards in your phone. Um, I, it's very likely that um, you would be tracked, of course, um, and your phone may be infected with spyware that we don't even know exists. Uh, we just have 20 seconds. How does it feel to be back here in the UAE, your organization, Human Rights Watch? It feels very good, but we also have seen the intense deterioration in the human rights situation in this country over the past 10 years. We want to be able to have access, but unfortunately, we we're not sure that will be the case beyond the special rules set out by the UN just for COP28. Joey Shea, we want to thank you for being with us, researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. We're going to link to all of your reports. Uh, heat at COP28 highlights risk to migrant workers, and you can smell petrol in the air. Um, uh, and it's very good to know that you are back here um, telling us what's happening here. Happy belated birthday to Emily Goslin. I'm Amy Goodman from Dubai.